Transient loss of consciousness, or TLOC, is a very common presentation to emergency and urgent care practitioners. Exactly how common it is, is difficult to find in literature, but some sources suggest that as much as 50% of the population will suffer some sort of TLOC in their lifetime. A 2014 audit of paramedic call volume suggests as much as 6.7% of patients that a paramedic will see in a 12-month period will involve transient loss of consciousness. And I'm sure that many of us listening will be familiar with having to assess and manage patients where collapse is the primary presenting complaint. This is a symptom with a varying spectrum of consequence, ranging from the simple vasovagal event to more sinister life-threatening causes. And as a result, ambulance clinicians need to be able to identify red flags in these patients and know how to appropriately refer on or safely discharge them. This week, it's all about TLOC. We're looking at guidelines for assessment, covering how to recognise potential causes and what the next steps in a patient pathway are. So let's get started. Ambulance General Broadcast, any vehicles available to book on or come clear for an outstanding Category 1 emergency. Hello and welcome to General Broadcast. My name's Josh, I'm a trainee specialist paramedic in critical care. And my name's Simon, I'm a trainee advanced clinical practitioner in emergency medicine. Okay, so in this episode, as we said, we're going to be covering the assessment of transient loss of consciousness, or TLOC, and discussing some of the differentials that could be responsible, from the easily discharged to the potentially life-threatening. What we aren't going to be covering is the potential complicating factors, such as coexisting injuries from, from the TLOC. So as always, we need to ensure that we're performing a very thorough assessment and applying sound clinical judgment. So Simon, do you want to start us off with a definition? What is transient loss of consciousness? Transient loss of consciousness is defined as a sudden, short-lived loss of consciousness, but most importantly, it must have a rapid recovery to a normal state. Now, there's lots of potential causes of TLOC, and many that paramedics see uh, relatively commonly, but it's our job to go through the history and assessment and find the the ones that would concern us and the ones that don't. So uh, let's start talking about assessment then. The first most obvious step is to ascertain whether this was actually a loss of consciousness because patients and laypersons tend to use the word collapse quite interchangeably. They, they can use it to describe conditions such as a faint, such as simply falling over, a fit or, or even you know being dead or dying. So it, it's really important that we get to the root of what exactly happened, what the patients mean by the words they're using, what they mean by collapse, what they mean by blackout. And, and it's important for us to ascertain, was there a loss of consciousness? Did they actually black out? How did they end up on the floor? So it's really important to, to work out uh, exactly what they meant by the words they're using, what they mean by collapse, what they mean by blackout. Did they actually lose consciousness or did they just fall over? And if we're struggling to, to decide or if we're, if we're really struggling to, to work out whether they did lose consciousness or not, because we all know those patients that can be particularly cryptic in, in, the, in the words they're saying. And, and no matter how many times you phrase a question, it still give you particularly cryptic events. If, we, if we're really struggling, it's safest to assume that there was a loss of consciousness and go from there. I think, Josh, it's not just what patients mean by the word collapse. I think it's what healthcare professionals mean as well. As lots of healthcare professionals and even varying paramedics use the word collapse uh, differently. So I think it's really important, when, we, especially when we document an event in our, in our paperwork, that we really define exactly what the patient said, exactly what they remember, and we sort of explain what we mean by the term collapse. Yeah, that, that's really vitally important to clarify. I think it's probably worth saying at this point that just because patients have had a near collapse or a, or a near loss of consciousness and not fully lost consciousness, that's not suggesting that that is in any way more reassuring or, or less important. Uh, and in fact, I'm pretty certain there was a paper, which I don't have to hand right now, but I'm pretty certain there was a paper that has shown that there's no significant difference in, in mortality outcomes between patients that have had f complete syncope and, and pre-syncopal symptoms, that they're, they're actually still quite quite risky or as risky as one another. So I'll, I'll link to that in the article if I can find it, because I think that's quite important for us to know and, and be aware of when it comes to risk stratifying these patients. So it is important to make the distinction between near loss of consciousness or loss of consciousness for, for our subsequent history takes and impressions, but that 
doesn't mean that just because they didn't lose consciousness, that if they had presyncopal symptoms on their own, that there couldn't be something else more sinister at play. So we need to start with the history from the patient. So the most accurate way to do this is normally chronologically. So asking them about events that led up to the collapse, uh, asking the patients to be very descriptive. If possible, start with an open question. So I like to ask things like, tell me what happened. What can you remember? We need to know how they felt, how things happened, how things developed over time, trying to create a timeline, what they saw, and then what any external observers and bystanders saw. But I would stress it's really important to ask the patient first and then ask the bystanders afterwards. Only because sometimes patients will just repeat what bystanders said and they will try and fill in gaps in what they remember with what the bystanders have filled in. So if the patient can't remember a five-minute period, but the bystanders can tell you, that's really important to know that the patient couldn't remember that period. I think I think we covered that in our um, in our falls episode, didn't we? So yeah, if if it's all possible, um, if we could take those his- histories separate from one another, that that's that's really important to get accurate information. So we've asked our open question, and we've got the patient to tell us everything they can recall. And then the bystanders have chipped in and said what they saw, which is a really important part of the history. And then we need to ask some more closed questions or, or closing down questions specifically to fill in the gaps of anything that the patient didn't tell us. So they might have already told us some of this information, but it's important that if they haven't, we get this. So the sort of questions we want to ask are about the circumstances of the event. What were they doing before the event? Had they been working out or exercising? This is really important because any patients, especially young patients that collapse during exertion is a considerable red flag and likely will need further follow-up. And digging down even further, Simon, so making sure we're really clear was, was this a collapse during exercise or immediately after exercise? Or was this a collapse you know, some time after to exercise, because obviously a, a collapse during exercise is a big concern, whereas collapses that or loss of consciousness that happens uh, after exercise or a reasonable time afterwards could just be a simple syncope. So other questions such as, had they eaten a big meal? So this is particularly common uh, in older patients, often uh, one of the most common presentations around the sort of Christmas period when people tend to eat more than they would normally. The reason being is that we call it postprandial hypertension. So a patient will, uh, an older patient will eat a, a large meal. They will then have blood flow diverted to digestion uh, and they will have increased parasympathetic response, which will then lower their blood pressure, lower their pulse rate. They're more likely then to have a syncope as a result. Other situations, such as uh, whether they've just got out of a hot shower, obviously uh, the warmth of the the hot shower can cause vasodilation, which will lower blood pressure and make someone more prone to collapse. Had they been urinating or coughing, which can stimulate uh, vagal tone and therefore cause a parasympathetic response, lowering blood pressure and pulse. Yeah, particularly and particularly uh, sort of adjusting tie or tightening collar buttons, any, any movement or pressure around the neck, could uh, stimulate the sort of carotid sinus, the, the baroreceptors in there. So next, we need to go on to ask about the person's posture immediately before the loss of consciousness. It's quite unusual for the less concerning differential diagnoses to happen when a person is sat comfortably uh, because of the increased functional reserve that we've got when we're at rest. So uh, cases of, of people who've collapsed whilst they're seated uh, without any obvious provoking factor, factors, so Um, Obviously, there's the classic people that have situational syncopes whilst they're having a tooth extracted at a dentist or something like that. Um, People that are reported to collapse whilst they're seated, if there's not really strong, uh, obvious provoking factors to make us think of of situational syncopes, then we need to be investigating them really carefully for for more sinister uh, causes. However, our our simple syncopes, our vasovagal syncopes are are quite common in, in patients that have been standing for a long time or orthostatic syncopes happening uh, when patients are are just getting up from a chair or just changing their position or posture. So the only thing I'd add to that is um, in in one of the common ones we we just mentioned it is the postprandial hypertension so that can happen in the elderly um, again sat at the dinner table just after a big meal 
Uh, that normally happens with sitting. But then again, that can also happen from the transition just after eating when someone's standing. So it's always something to think about. But um, yeah, I agree. It's much more concerning when someone is sat down. And I would say it's extremely concerning for someone to faint if they are lying down. So I think the further or the lower our head is to uh, to flat, the more worried we should be if, if someone's had a, an episode of uh, T-Lock. So the next thing we need to discuss is any prodromal symptoms that the patient had. So by prodromal symptoms, we mean any sensations or feelings that the patient had just before the loss of consciousness occurred. Now, some of these could be reassuring to us and would suggest a non-serious vasovagal cause, whereas others could be much more serious and be classed as red flags. So the non-serious ones that would reassure us are things like sweating and clamminess, some dizziness, particularly a lightheadedness as opposed to a vertigo, and the feeling of being warm, hot, the sensation that you are going to pass out. Some people know that they're feeling that way. Then also some visual disturbances, such as the sensation that there's blackness coming in from their peripheries and their vision and closing in is normally a feeling people get before they pass out. We also need to ask about the red flag prodromal symptoms, which would worry us that there's much more sinister pathology potentially happening. So Josh, do you want to talk about some of those? Yeah, sure. So uh, the the absence of prodrome in itself is, is something that we need to pick up. So people that have been absolutely fine one minute have been witnessed to collapse or had a loss of consciousness and, and not been any of the wiser to it in itself is something that we need to pick up and be aware of. Uh, there's some debate about whether or not this is specific to um, to cardiac syncope, but certainly if, if a patient was fine one minute and then was on the floor unconscious uh, and then regained consciousness, cardiac syncope would certainly be high on my list of differentials that uh, I need to investigate and, and, and potentially exclude. But that's not to say that there's nothing associated with cardiac syncope so uh, so common or concerning prodrome for that is uh, any chest pain preceding the preceding the loss of consciousness or uh, shortness of breath particularly preceding loss of consciousness is quite concerning for us i'd add abdominal pain and back pain and severe headache to those as well with regards to other things that can make patients collapse such as a uh, subarachnoid hemorrhage if it was a severe uh, onset of rapid headache, abdominal or back pain could be uh, a ruptured uh, aneurysm or dissecting aneurysm, um, which again could uh, cause a patient to uh, to suddenly collapse. So I think those are all things that we need to make sure that we ask um, in, in our history take. Yeah, and uh, a lot of listeners will probably be aware of the prodromal symptoms preceding uh, epileptic seizures, often termed auras. So some people will have some halos around their vision or flashing lights. Uh, some people will have a, a, a feeling that they can't quite put their finger on, but they just associate it with the fact that they're about to have a fit or a seizure. Again, there's there's um, cases of people having a feeling of deja vu before they have a fit or or the, the opposite of that. I'm probably going to butcher this, but jema vu. So um, feeling not feeling themselves or feeling out of place in what would normally be a, a familiar situation can all be prodrome for seizure activity. So if somebody's just describing that uh, and other things in history aren't quite adding up to what might sound like a syncope, then then that might point us in, in, a, in a more seizure or epileptic uh, direction. Yeah, one thing I have noticed actually from um, previously working in, in telephone triage as part of my career, um, I've seen a lot of people scoff um, at um, those who phone in with um, the report that they think they're going to have a fit. And, and I think it's really important that we remember that a lot of people that do have fits or these collapses that are not yet diagnosed as epilepsy do have auras and do get sensations that can sometimes go on for a period of time before their actually fit starts. So, so often people do actually know that they're going to have a collapsing episode and that they are calling 909 um, as a uh, as a preventative measure, knowing that something is going to occur. Yeah, definitely. I, and, and I think that's the case for a lot of other conditions, isn't it? Because we're, we're all quite familiar with that, that feeling or sensation of impending doom being a... Uh, um, a, a common symptom that's reported in all the textbooks for, for MIs or, or peri-arrest patients. And uh, I, it certainly sent chills down my back 
the the number of time or on the odd occasion that a patient has has said that i feel like i'm going to die or i just feel like the world's about to end um because on, on the few occasions that it has happened i would probably say at least 50 percent of them have promptly gone into cardiac arrest so um so i i think there is is something to be said about about the, these feelings and these prodromal symptoms. Let's go on to appearance then. Uh, and again, this is very unlikely to be reported from the patient themselves. So we're definitely going to be looking to the bystanders, normally a family member, um, to describe the appearance of the patient preceding the event, during the event and immediately after the event. So the, the obvious one that we want to gather from them is, is the colour and the complexion of the patient. So prior to to a syncopal event whether or not it's vasovagal or or a cardiac syncope but prior to a, a vasovagal event people will probably go really pale they might describe them as looking really clammy and really sweaty that's quite characteristic of situational and vasovagal syncopes you tend to get that less with a cardiac syncope color after the event is is quite important so we would expect people to return to a normalish color fairly rapidly after the event although patients that are prevented from going flat or who are asked to sit down immediately after the um, after the event may still be pale. So I've seen lots of, of vasovagal syncopes where people have had prolonged symptoms and prolonged pallor and, and nausea and dizziness because they've been sat down and, and haven't been allowed to lie down and, and reach equilibrium. And um, equally patients that are reported as being really flushed and going really red faced after the event uh, that could be suggestive of, of a cardiac syncope so where they've had a period of of uh, hypoxia and, and anoxia uh, in the brain and in in uh, in the in the tissues around the face that causes venodilation and and causes quite a flushed appearance afterwards so that that's uh, quite related and, and then people that are really red-faced uh, after the event we should be thinking, well, could this have been a, a more sinister cause? And also the patient's eyes, whether or not they were open or shut. So eyes are often open during events like syncope and like seizures. And it's often quite well remembered by uh, by people that have seen it because it is quite disconcerting. So a lot of people will say, you know, their eyes rolled back into their head or they were just staring at me during the event. So that's, that's often quite readily reported. But um, things like psychogenic seizures or non-epileptic seizures will often have their eyes closed during the event. And although that's important to note, and we should be aware of, we're probably not going to go in the whole remit of, of psychogenic versus epileptic seizures in this podcast. Uh, it's not quite within the remit of what we're looking to do, and we probably wouldn't do it justice. No, but I would recommend that uh, any of the listeners go away and listen to uh, the Recess Room podcast on seizures, which came out um, several months ago. They differentiate between ways that you can differentiate sometimes between um epileptic and non-epileptic seizures and then another good podcast to listen to is femcast which i believe uh, it was uh, an episode at the end of last year that looked at uh, psychosomatic illness um, which is another good good reference to listen to for for those types of symptoms yeah both really really good podcasts but um we won't have any more conversation about our competition here simon all right let's keep it, <laughs> let's keep it all on us so while we're talking to the bystanders and any witnesses about the patient's appearance it's really important that we then ask about the presence or absence of movement during the event. So the most common thing we're looking for here is any limb jerking and its duration. So most people, when asked this question, will tell you whether their patient went floppy uh, or whether they went rigid and whether they had any jerking movements in the limbs. And it's really important that we document those two. Obviously, limb jerking does lead towards most of the time that it could be in uh, a seizure type of activity as opposed to a, a T-lock. However, it should be remembered that if a patient particularly is a patient that has a vasovagal episode and is held up, uh, so a common example would be at the dinner table, an elderly relative looks like they're going to pass out and they go pale and then the family will hold them in the chair and support them upright. And sometimes this can then decrease uh, cerebral blood flow further because of the uh, increase in loss of blood pressure. And patients can then have a reflex anoxic fit, which is basically where they will go tense and limb jerk 
which might make people think that they've actually had a seizure when this actually is just the fact they've been held up. And as soon as we lie these patients down and raise their legs and blood pressure is re restored to their head, normally all of this will stop. Yeah, and I think that's the defining characteristic, isn't it? That, that if you've got that kind of a picture and they say as soon as they've gone down to the ground, it's stopped, then, then that's really reassuring. And I think it's also, while we're talking about it, important that at that point that we reassure the family and reassure the patient themselves of why that has happened. So I always explain exactly like you have, Simon, just just not quite in his, his medical terminology, but always explain what's happened. And it's important that they, they know that they're not epileptic, that they're not necessarily going, you know, they're not going to go and have a load of fits. And, and this is something they have to worry about, that it is just hopefully a simple situation like a, a syncope that was made slightly more complex because of the way that it was managed. And, and we can use that as an opportunity to give some really good uh, health promotion and first aid advice of, of what they should have do, should do in the future. Yeah, and I think if there's any doubt in the history, so if, if the bystanders or yourselves from, from taking and asking people are not sure whether this was fitting or whether this was maybe because they were held up, if they have fully recovered, it's it's definitely worth follow-up with the GP because there are um, clinics such as a first-fit clinic that patients can be referred to and then they, they can be worked up by a specialist who will retake the history and maybe run some further tests just to uh, look into it a little bit more, just to, just to make sure and cover all bases that it wasn't actually some degree of seizure. I think um, most of the time the history gives us the answer, but uh, obviously if there is that doubt, then um, make sure you refer on. So moving on to tongue biting then, this is really important for us to uh, to cover and ask about for a number of reasons. Number one, we have to positively ask about it because patients may not be aware that they've done it uh, and we need to assess for injury to the tongue because it, it might be that they need to go in to, to have a, a, a tongue injury sutured or, or managed but uh, it can it can elude valuable information to us. So uh, tongue biting is not necessarily diagnostic of a seizure, although it, it should increase our suspicions. The the literature is quite quite sparse and quite poor, uh, or of of quite poor quality, and they tend to vary slightly in what they report about how how much credence we should give to tongue biting. But the general theme seems to be that uh, tongue biting is not present in all seizures, but it certainly seems to be present in, in more seizures than it is in syncope. And fitting tends to rely, uh, result in either bilateral or uh, single lateral tongue injuries, whereas syncope can result in a, in a more central tongue injury if, it, if it's going to and, and that's sustained from the fall rather than active tongue biting as, as is the case in, in fitting. So obviously we have to take that with a pinch of salt but again this can just be another little puzzle piece that helps us build up our, our diagnostic impression. I think it's worth mentioning, Josh, about incontinence, uh, so specifically incontinence of urine. I, during my training, always believe this to be heavily indicative of uh, a seizure. And while that is true with seizures, actually it's not that specific and incontinence can happen with uh, syncopes as well. So I think I've, I've decreased my reliance upon it a little bit. It, it, it's a symptom that I will document and something that I will take into consideration, but, I, but I'm less worried about it definitively being a seizure than I used to be. It's probably important to clarify that refers mainly to urinary incontinence so urinary incontinence could happen in either but it's really really unlikely to have fecal incontinence in this in a syncopal event so if yeah. a patient's been fecally incontinent or doubly incontinent that points us more towards seizure than just urinary on its own so up to this point we've talked about how people feel prior to collapsing and what people saw prior to the patient collapsing, and then what bystanders and family members saw during the loss of consciousness episode. Now I think we need to start to move into the duration of the loss of consciousness, and then what happens after the loss of consciousness. So if we start with the duration of the event. So we would class duration as the onset of the collapse to the point at which they regain full consciousness. So typically with a T-lock, you will have a rapid onset and a relatively rapid recovery. Putting exact times on this is quite difficult and can be quite challenging because people have different tolerances, different recovery times. However, a good rule of thumb 
is that the longer someone is unresponsive for, the more likely the uh, it is to be a sinister cause. I would expect someone with a vasovagal transient loss of consciousness to have recovered within seconds to up to maybe a minute. Anything sort of longer than a minute or two minutes would be concerning me uh, slightly. I don't know how you feel about that, Josh. Yeah, I'm inclined to agree. I think that's a good rule of thumb. I think it's probably important to point out that just because it's a short recovery or a short period of time that the event's taken place over doesn't mean that it is necessarily a reassuring cause. So we know cardiac syncopies can take place over a matter of seconds. But I think, you know, the fact that the longer it goes on, the more concerning it is, is a good rule of thumb. That probably needs to be put into perspective. So there's those cases where reflex anoxic sort of seizures may have occurred or patients may have had uh, prolonged periods of pallor or diaphoresis or feeling unwell where they've been held up, where they've had a situational syncope. And so, you, you know, duration of symptoms may not be as telling or may not be as important in that case. But yeah, I think that's probably a good rule of thumb. And I think the, the other um, key thing to consider is the rapid full recovery. If someone is having reoccurring episodes or is not recovering, if their OBS are not returning to normal as you're examining them or when you're posturally changing them, again, I think you need to reconsider that this might be something else but a, a simple um, vasovagal syncope. Kind of off the back of that is the, the presence or absence of confusion during the recovery period. Where there is a definite postictal period, this is a pretty good indicator that a patient's had, uh, had a fit. That's not to say that we shouldn't expect patients who've, who've fainted to get straight back up and, and crack on with their normal day. Uh, it's completely appropriate for them to be a little bit tired, to still feel a little bit dizzy or nauseated and just feel generally quite worn out is what I've found uh, after they've had a, had a faint or a, a simple syncope. But what we wouldn't expect them to, to do is is to be confused, particularly confused after the event or, or be unable to hold normal conversations relatively soon after after regaining consciousness. So as a patient's coming round, definitely if we are what we would class as postictal, where there is confusion and some agitation, normally with seizures this tends to resolve gradually over time. So that would be more indicative of someone who maybe has had a seizure. But if the agitation doesn't resolve and continues, this would be a considerable red flag to me for uh, some sort of cranial pathology, maybe a bleed, which is, is causing continued reduced conscious level and, uh, and uh, agitation. And that, that leads us quite nicely on to the next uh, topic that we need to be aware of and we need to document, which is uh, a weakness during the recovery period. So it's potential that well, there's the potential that we might arrive sometime after the event and sometime after the recovery period has finished. So we should be uh, asking about this if, if, if that's the case um, and documenting pertinent negatives, whether or not there was not just weaknesses, but any kind of positive neurological signs can be indicative that there's potentially something more sinister going on. It is quite unusual for CVEs to present with a loss of consciousness, but they can obviously present with seizure activity so if we think the patient might have had a seizure and they're now presenting with some kind of hemipresis or, or other neurological sign, we should have CVE or TIA uh, if it's resolved high on our list of, of suspicions. There's, of course, the chance that a patient could have had a seizure from another cause and is now presenting with Todd's paresis. So patients that are epileptic that have had, had a seizure, it is fairly common for them to present with um, a condition known as Todd's paresis or Todd's paralysis, which is normally, to my knowledge, a full hemiparesis, so loss of power or motor sensation, uh, uh, sorry, motor control down one side, but it can be localised to just an arm or just the side of a face or just slurred speech. And telling these apart can be an absolute nightmare. So my take is that if the patient isn't known to suffer from Todd's paresis, uh, so i.e. they haven't had it in the past as a result of a, of, a, of a seizure and the symptoms are now sustained, it's probably an idea to treat for the worst case scenario and, and get this patient treated as, as if it was a stroke and get them through the scanner. 
Whereas if it is well known and, and this is a, a known condition to them, um, we can maybe ease back on that. So that would be most of our history of presenting complaint covered. So as per normal workup of a patient, we then move on to past medical history and family history. So in the past medical history, we're going to be looking at previous cardiac problems, so particularly MI, ischemic heart disease, um, presence of heart failure and uh, structural um, heart abnormalities, congenital heart abnormalities, any previous strokes or known epilepsy or previous seizures or collapsing episodes that have been under investigation or any previous uh, cardiac arrhythmias are all things that may help us with the, the answer as to what's happened today. But obviously we shouldn't assume that something that's happened previously is is directly related to the event we're seeing today, but obviously it does sometimes provide us with the information we need to uh, to form a, an opinion. Moving into family history, the most important thing here is to ask about any history of sudden cardiac death or unexplained death in close family members specifically are under 40 and this is specifically mentioned by the NICE guidelines and must have a cardiology referral because these patients could be potentially high risk for sudden cardiac death themselves. Anything you want to add to past medical history or family history Josh that we haven't discussed there? No I think you've kind of covered everything there just we need to be hyper aware that we're taking a a really good family and and past medical history Um, and particularly for family history documenting that as a pertinent negative if it is a young person so making making it very clear that we have asked about it okay so we have taken quite a comprehensive history uh we now need to move on to our physical assessment and i'll just say at this point if from uh this part of the podcast on simon and i sound like we're a little bit drained and have lost the will to live it's because we lost the second half of uh of this recording the first time we did it so we are now re-recording the back end of this podcast so uh, we will try and be as enigmatic and energetic as we were the first time we recorded this won't we simon absolutely (laughs) (laughs) um okay so uh physical assessment then um Obviously, if the patient's injured, we need to uh, go down the route of exploring those injuries and we need to have uh, a fairly comprehensive injury survey of the patient looking to make sure that they haven't hurt themselves. I certainly think we need to palpate for head injuries in these patients at the very least. I can think of a couple of occasions where head injuries have been missed because patients are perhaps a little bit embarrassed if this is in a public place and they're trying to hurry us along and perhaps haven't noticed that injury or have said they haven't got one because they don't think it's important. So I think definitely as part of our injury screen, we need to bear that in mind and do a quick cursory head check. But for for the purpose of this podcast, we'll assume the patient hasn't sustained an injury from the uh, loss of consciousness. So we'll move on to a cardiovascular assessment. As with every loss of consciousness, these these casualties will be getting a 12-lead ECG, and that's looking for various electrical dysrhythmias that could have been responsible for the syncope, could, could have caused the cardiac syncope. So uh, the NICE guidance says that we're look, looking for any inappropriate or persistent bradycardias, looking for uh, any persistent ventricular ectopic beats or other ventricular arrhythmias, looking to make sure that the patient doesn't have a long QT syndrome, so uh, a corrected QT C of over 440 milliseconds in men or 460 milliseconds in women, also looking to ensure that they haven't got a short QT interval, so that the QTC isn't under 350 milliseconds and I'll link in the article to a really good summary of that on life in the fast lane ensuring that the patient doesn't have Brigada syndrome there's a number of morphologies that that can present as on an ECG so we need to be comfortable and confident with picking that up looking for ventricular pre-excitation such as Wolf-Parkinson-White syndrome any signs of left or right ventricular hypertrophy, abnormal T-wave inversion, obviously, or ST, ST segment changes could be related to, to a transient loss of consciousness. We need to be looking for any pathological Q-waves, any kind of atrial arrhythmias or AV conduction abnormalities, and in patients that have, have a pacemaker who sustained a transient loss of consciousness, we need to be uh, examining that really really carefully and probably referring them on to have that pacemaker checked and i think what you've just said josh is really important i've seen many times where paramedic mentors 
teach their students that the only thing they need to be able to recognize on an on an ECG is STEMI. And obviously, if we're looking in this case for TLOC, that's just not true. Paramedics should have a really good working knowledge of interpreting um, 12 lead ECGs, and they must be able to recognize all of those um, phenomena that you just talked about uh, on the 12 lead. So I think just knowing about STEMIs isn't proficient. And uh, if you're not comfortable with recognizing those uh, problems, then it's probably good just to look into uh, ECG learning a little bit more. Yeah, I completely agree that, and like I said, I'll uh, I'll put a number of links in the article to, for people to to go away and and look up any aspects that they're perhaps not as familiar with. So, as well as a comprehensive ECG, we need to be uh, doing a full cardiovascular workup for these patients, which includes heart sounds. So, we need to have a good listen to the heart, and in the context of TLOC, any new murmurs or murmurs that we can't verify to be old, we should treat those as a red flag as they probably need to have an urgent cardiology review as a result. And we also need to be looking at orthostatic blood pressures. And we've talked a little bit about orthostatic BPs in in our Fools podcast, so I won't harp on about that too much. But we should be doing orthostatic blood pressures in, in these TLOC patients. And for diagnoses such as orthostatic hypertension, we shouldn't be making that diagnosis unless we've got clinically reproducible findings on these orthostatic blood pressures. I think you've made um, a really good point there, actually, Josh, about heart murmurs. Many student paramedics that I've had in the past don't regularly listen to heart murmurs in clinical practice. And they've told me a variety of reasons. Often it's because their mentors don't see it as being relevant. And, and then others, it's because they don't understand like how to perform the technique properly. Hopefully, most universities now are, are teaching patient assessment and, and it should be covered in the course. However, if it's not, there's really good resources out there like Geeky Medics, which I really advocate anyone to go and listen to just to um, look at their cardiovascular examination. Um, and they've got some really good guides on, on how to perform the technique and videos on how to perform the technique. So just use them to gain a basic understanding of, of the technique and then start listening to chests every day in clinical practice so while you're on placement just listen to chest after chest after chest and eventually you will get used to listening to what heart murmurs are when they're present so you'll hear the normal and then you'll be able to detect the abnormal and I think that's the most important point to take away from this in your early paramedic career it's not really necessary that you can diagnose the heart murmur but I think you should be able to recognize that one's there and then refer that person on for further assessment. Moving further into the cardiovascular exam as part of our history we should have established whether there's any presence of alarming symptoms such as shorts of breath, chest, back and abdominal pain and these could be signs of red flag conditions such as a pulmonary embolus, aortic dissection, or in the abdomen, a triple A. And any of these can present with collapse and must be differentiated from less serious causes of TLOC. We should consider doing bilateral BPs, but I think it's really important that we mention that this is often taught wrong and that most aneurysms won't present with bilateral BP differences. It's a common misconception and it actually depends on the location of the aneurysm and that many won't have this change. We then need to take a look at the abdomen to look for any signs of abdominal pathology, including pulsations and masses that may indicate AAA or tenderness and guarding, such as in a ruptured viscous or imperitonism, all of which can present with collapse and shock. Finally, look at the peripheral vascular system. So have a look at the legs and the arms. Look for any lower limb edema, which if it's bilateral may be a sign of heart failure. Or if it's unilateral and there's swelling, redness or tenderness, this could be a sign of a DVT, which is a risk factor for the development of PE. I think it's probably worth bearing in mind that uh, DVTs or clinical signs of DVTs aren't always present in, in, in a lot of PEs. And there's some research that suggests it's as low as 11%. So whilst that's something that we often look for and, and often relate to PEs, I think we also just need to bear in mind that clinical findings of a DVT, certainly for us, are going to be quite rare and we may have to explore the history more for signs of more subtle red flags. Whilst we are on the point of abdomen, I think it's probably worth mentioning ectopic pregnancies as well. This is something that we need to have in the back of our mind, certainly in women of childbearing age. I know I've certainly been told in the past by uh, an obstetrician that 
women of childbearing age plus abdominal pain plus syncope is an ectopic pregnancy until proven otherwise. Up, up to 20% of these patients will present hemodynamically unstable or potentially with syncope as their, as their first big presentation to us. So we, we certainly have to be aware of this and have that in the back of our mind as it's something that we really don't want to miss. And that can be quite tricky for us because we often certainly working on the road don't have availability to pregnancy tests certainly we didn't in my trust when I was on the road so we just have to ensure that we're exploring that uh, and safely excluding that where we can. Moving on from the cardiovascular examination we're going to undertake a neurological examination which is going to vary depending on what we're concerned about however generally should include a cranial nerve exam, an upper and lower limb neurological examination, a fast test and a blood sugar. Most of the things we're looking for in the neurological examination are unlikely to present as a transient loss of consciousness and are more likely to present as a prolonged altered level of consciousness or coma. However, they are differentials that we need to consider, so it's important to do a thorough neurological examination. For example, a hypoglycemic patient, while they could collapse and be unresponsive, they're going to have a prolonged episode of loss of consciousness or reduced level of consciousness as opposed to a transient loss of consciousness with recovery until we intervene and manage that by giving them more sugar and glucose. Okay, so now let's talk about some uh, individual differential diagnoses. So we'll talk about some of the risk factors and features that we might pick up in our in our history taken in our assessment uh, and what differential that might suggest to us as being the cause of the TLOC and then Simon you're going to tell us a little bit about what the next steps for that patient would be whether or not discharge them what our discharge advice would be or if we do take them into hospital what tests we're taking them to hospital for and what referrals we're going to be looking for. So I think it's important to first start with some definitions because there's been a huge number of terms that can get thrown about and that we've been using so far in the podcast and the temptation and the risk is that you can use them quite interchangeably because they are very similar however it's important that we're able to make some clear delineations in our mind so the first one i want to define is syncope now syncope is a loss of consciousness due to a temporary global reduction in oxygen supply to the brain this is almost always due to a drop in cerebral blood flow but occasionally this can be from hypoxemia this is opposed to other forms of loss of consciousness such as seizure or drug-induced loss of consciousness, where there's a direct electrical or chemical influence on the brain causing that reduction in level of consciousness. Now, syncope can have a number of origins, from reflex syncope, that I'll explain in a moment, to the more serious orthostatic syncopes and the life-threatening cardiac syncope. So reflex syncope then. This is where there is a, a neurological component that has modulated either the heart rate or the vascular tone, causing a drop in blood pressure and cerebral blood flow. Now reflex syncopes can roughly be broken up into three categories. There's vasovagal syncope, situational syncope and carotid sinus syncope. Now these are all really quite similar and will present really similarly. However, there are some slight differences that it's important we understand. So vasovagal syncope is the preferred term that we use when the faint occurs in either an emotional setting or a setting of distress, or if there's an absence of a, an identifiable trigger other than upright posture. So it's the term that we use when we're not entirely certain what has caused the syncopal response. And it's thought that this is an overreaction of the fight or flight response that's present in some mammals, making them play dead. So a classic example of vasovagal syncope is that seen in a movie where there's been some really shocking uh, news uh, and one of the characters has put their hand to their forehead and fainted. It's a classic vasovagal syncope. Now situational syncope is really similar to this in its presentation and its mechanism but we tend to use this term when there's a clear trigger as to what has caused the T-lock. So examples of situational syncopes would be cough syncope, sneeze syncope, where somebody's been playing a wind instrument uh, and has lost consciousness. There's micturation or defecation syncopes where somebody's induced a vagal response. Postprandial hypertension or postprandial syncope is a type of situational syncope. And there's even orgasmic or coital syncopes 
where there's a clear trigger that has caused this person to lose consciousness. Finally, there's carotid sinus syncope or carotid sinus hypersensitivity. This is generally pressure around the neck that has affected the carotid baroreceptors, induced a vagal response uh, and induced the bradycardia that way. So as I've said, these, these all present quite similarly and that's why you may see some texts or some people using the terms somewhat interchangeably or just referring to reflex syncopes. And that's fine, but as with most things, if we can make it specific, we should do. So it's a bit like having a patient in fast AF. You could say they're in fast AF, or you could say they're in SVT. Both are correct, but one is more correct and one is more helpful. So hopefully that's a bit more clear and we'll talk about some of the more specific features and some of the more common ones we're likely to come across in paramedic practice. But as we've already said, there'll be a bit more of a detailed table on the article on the website. Let's start at the top of the list with uh, postprandial hypotension. So this is, as we said, is a syncopal collapse, a drop in blood pressure shortly after eating a large meal. This particularly affects the elderly, particularly those who have hypertension or a diagnosis of uh, Parkinson's disease. Because of the way the disease manifests in the body, they've got a much lessened ability to compensate and have a sympathetic response to standing up. And again, those elderly people that have been in institutionalised. So we'll see this happening quite a lot in nursing homes and in care homes. And the features of this collapse, it'll, as I've said, it'll be shortly after a large meal, uh, and this is associated with particularly carbohydrate-heavy meals. So your Sunday roast or your Christmas dinner is going to be a stickler for, for causing this. And it's often on standing from the dinner table, although it can be from a seated position, so it's not always at that clear cut. However, we would expect these patients to have some clear prodromal events, those reassuring prodromal events we discussed, talking about uh, feeling hot, some dizziness, perhaps coming over pallid uh, and sweaty. And then we would expect them to have a rapid recovery after they've hit the floor. So Simon, what would the next steps and advice be for somebody if we think they've had a postprandial syncope? So often with these patients, the these episodes are unproblematic. They, a lot of the time, can be discharged at scene. So the most important thing is to make sure that there's no abnormalities on your examination. And then once you've established all of the history and exam that we, we've talked about previously and that there's nothing concerning there, then as long as they've made a full recovery, you could probably discharge them on scene with just a little bit of lifestyle advice. So maybe having uh, smaller meals, but more regular meals, increasing fluid intake just to make sure that our blood pressures um, and, and we're well perfused. And if it's occurring regularly, then it probably should be followed up by a GP. However, I would say that anyone who has a loss of consciousness episode, we probably should be alerting the GP anyway, um, even if that's just sending our electronic patient record to, to the GP surgery, or maybe giving them a call and letting the GP surgery know that this has happened, just so that there is some awareness that there's a, an ongoing problem. And then obviously, worsening advice and uh, safety netting. So hopefully a family member can stay with the patient just for a little while, and then obviously discharge at scene. But obviously, if there are any things found in the history or examination that concern us then obviously we would be transported to hospital likewise if there was not a full recovery or if the blood pressure kept redropping then i think we need to be concerned about other causes and that probably should be reviewed uh, in in a e okay so cardiac syncope then the risk factors for this can be quite tricky to pin down often it will be in our more elderly population who have pre-existing cardiovascular risk factors. However, it can present in the, in the younger population as well. Patients that are over 35 and have had their first transient loss of consciousness are associated with an increased risk for cardiac syncope. So that's something that we want to bear in mind. Uh, and the features for cardiac syncope. So often this is talked about as having no prodrome. That's referring to those reassuring symptoms. So the three Ps that we were talking about and the, the dizziness, the, the lightheadedness, the uh, feeling as if they're going to faint and the closing in a vision. Often cardiac syncope is associated with not having those, but it can have prodromal symptoms. Remember, that means just symptoms that happen before the event. So patients that are complaining of dyspnea, shortness of breath, chest pain, or who have been witnessed to have cyanosis preceding the collapse, they are all quite highly specific 
for cardiac syncope. So they're not overly sensitive. Not all cardiac syncopes will have these symptoms, but where these symptoms are present, we should be highly, highly suspicious of a cardiac syncope and we should really have our hackles raised if either of those three prodromal events uh, are reported in our history take. The presence of new murmurs or thrills on a physical exam, uh, like I say, if a patient's got a heart murmur or we can't exclude it to be old, we should be considering whether or not there's a potentially obstructive cardiomyopathy there that could have been affecting cardiac ejection. If there's ECG findings, so conduction abnormalities, long or short QT intervals, Brigada syndrome, ventricular hypertrophy, any of the things that we've talked about earlier, they should be treated as red flags. And as I said, patients with a pacemaker, we probably want to be taking them to have that pacemaker looked at and, and have a cardiology review if they've had a true syncope. Simon, what's going to be happening to these patients? Uh, what do we need to do with them and, and, and what uh, referrals would we expect them to have? So as you've sort of alluded to already, um, these are our higher risk patients. So these are the patients we don't want to be discharging at scene. Definitely need to be referred to ED for further workup. So once in ED, they're going to get repeat ECGs. They're probably going to get a panel of bloods. They may get an echo if it's deemed um, an urgent requirement. A lot of the time, they can still be discharged if they are stable well and we don't find anything uh, immediately life-threatening however they will definitely then be followed up likely by various clinics depending on what we find so cardiology follow-up could involve further echo if it wasn't done stress testing 24 hour or 48 hour tapes sometimes up to seven day tapes to record and look for arrhythmias and ultimately, depending on what's found, these patients could go on to require a pacemaker or internal defib. But I would definitely say the most important thing is to recognise the red flags in these patients and they must be conveyed to hospital. That, that's the take home message. OK, so we'll leave that there. Obviously, there are lots of different differential diagnoses for, for transient loss of consciousness. And we've put as many as we can in a, in a table up on the article. So we, we've covered things like seizures, non-epileptic seizures. We've gone into a little bit uh, on there as, as well as some of the really rare things like subclavian steel, which I have only ever heard of once or twice. So you can go and look that up on generalbroadcast.org.uk and get a little bit more information. Just before we finish, Simon, I've got a couple of case studies to work through. So I thought I could give you the histories and examination of some patients that I've seen in my practice. And you can pull out the concerns in the history or the reassuring features in the history and see what conclusions you come to. And I'll tell you if it's the same as me. I'm testing yeah, me. testing you. Uh, and you you haven't seen <laughs> these case studies before, so it's it, it really putting you on the spot. Okay, so case study number one. Uh, you are called to a 17-year-old female who has collapsed, uh, and it's come through as a Category 1 because of noisy breathing. You're on scene, surprisingly enough, within eight minutes. And on arrival, she's GCS 15, she's fully recovered, and all OBS are normal. In fact, she opened the door and answered the door to you. She states she's got a history of syncope, uh, a very recent history of syncope, and she's had four ambulances out over the past few weeks for collapsing incidents similar to what happened today. She was discharged by the paramedics on each occasion with a, with a diagnosis of vasovagal syncope. And on the last occasion, she was referred to her GP as she keeps fainting, but she's awaiting an appointment. So she's not seen a GP. Today, she was sitting on the couch and this is the last thing that she remembers. Her mother, who was in the kitchen next door, had been having a conversation with her and was alerted to something being wrong when she stopped replying and she noted some noisy breathing, noisy snoring breathing coming from the next room. Her mum's come in, found the patient unresponsive in a chair, breathing no noisily. There was no shaking reported. The patient was red in the face uh, when her mother found her. And she recovered within 30 seconds of her mother finding her. She was a little bit confused as to what was going on. Uh, the patient reports no prodrome prior to the events. And on each occasion, she had no prodromal symptoms reported or documented. Her ECG is normal sinus rhythm. Her heart sounds are normal. And there's no orthostatic changes. She has no focal neurology on a neuro exam. So what are your thoughts about that history? 
So I can see how um, this patient has previously been discharged as a vasovagal syncope. That being said, there are some really subtle red flags in the history that would make me a little bit concerned with, uh, with this patient today. So starting off, the position in which the patient had her loss of consciousness episode in. It's very rare for people to have a syncope sitting down. It's not unheard of, but it is quite rare, especially in a younger person with relatively good cardiovascular reserve. So that's the first concerning red flag to me was the fact that she was sitting when it happened. The next red flag to me was the fact that she had no prodrome. So uh, from the history, she said that she was talking to her mum or listening to her mum and, and then she can't remember anything that happened and that she didn't feel unwell prior to collapse. She had no dizziness, no sweatiness, didn't feel like she was lightheaded or going to pass out, didn't feel hot. These things really concern me. So this would lead me more to a, a red flag cause. So I think that the, the, those lack of prodrome is, is subtle but, but concerning. The next feature, we would expect someone with a vasovagal to be witnessed to be pale and maybe clammy. But from the history, um, her mum was saying that she looked red in the face. So again, that's not normal. And the last uh, part is the confusion as she came round. So confusion would fit more with a seizure type of activity, maybe some post-ictal. And I would just say that the fact that she hasn't recovered quickly because she was confused post-collapse is again another concerning feature. So it's quite subtle. I can see how people missed it, but I would suggest that this patient probably needs to be conveyed to ED for a further workup. There's just a lot of stuff there that while it could be a, a syncope, just doesn't quite fit for me. I, I think she needs to be sent to ED. Um, and what do you think what's your sort of uh, gut feeling saying happened or so, what you're concerned about? Uh, my differentials there would be probably a, a cardiac syncope or maybe some type of uh, seizure that we just don't know about yet. Yeah, good. So that's that's exactly the conclusion I came to. That's quite reassuring. So I, for exactly the same reasons that, that you've said, didn't feel comfortable discharging her with syncope. Uh, this would have been now the fifth time something has happened with no obvious provoking factors so i elected to take this patient to hospital fortunately we were there on a dca so it was just a case of getting her downstairs and taking her in and then en route she went vacant again and had a very short but very definite tonic clonic seizure with a very very brief postictal period afterwards which we were fortunate enough to catch on phone so on the phone so as soon as I saw what was happening I told her mum to get her phone out uh, and record the the seizure record her face record her eyes um, all of which is really really useful information for making a latter diagnosis when when she goes to a first fit clinic as I knew that's now where this referral was going to take us and we just coached her around as you would any other fit afterwards so so fortunately we were there to witness that event and fortunately we managed to capture some some hard evidence of of what was happening uh for for her to have her neurological uh referral and, and assessment but like you say sometimes it comes down to just some subtle things not adding up in the history yeah and and you know the old adage that history is 90 percent of diagnosis is definitely true you know a normal examination is somewhat reassuring but there the only clues we had was the history so unless your history take is really in detailed covering all of those red flags you're going to miss this and, and i can see how this patient's been left at home by maybe either in previous episodes these red flags weren't as obvious or or the fact that that whoever maybe asked them didn't quite sort of elucidate the, the right information so it's really important to do that and I like the idea as well of getting mum to film it as long as the patient's safe and um, this is a really good idea for for recommending to, to patients at home if people are having reoccurring seizures while they're in the diagnosis phase absolutely do all the things they need to do call 909 make sure the patient's safe put them in positions um, and, and pad them out but then filming it can actually give really good information to any follow-up clinics that they go to so i think that's a really good idea so second case study then 
so this is a call to a 60 year old female at a dinner party uh, who's been eating some appetizers and one's gone down the wrong way which has induced a coughing fit she's been reported as having an effective cough although she was coughing for about three minutes she's managed to clear her airway but shortly after that she's very rapidly she's come over very dizzy very lightheaded, and her husband reports that she was pale and clammy and he thought that she was going to faint and has caught her whilst she was thought of about to fall uh, and has held her up, gesturing for somebody to bring a dining chair in for her to sit on. Uh, and whilst they were fetching the chair, whilst he was holding her up, she's begun to shake and fit quite vigorously. Her husband's then put her down on the floor and directed somebody to call 999, and by the time they'd got the phone, the shaking had stopped and she'd started to come around. Other than feeling a little bit unwell, a little bit queasy now, she's conversing normally, and when you arrive, the patient uh, was on the floor as directed by 999, but was starting to feel a lot better and, and was wanting to get up and, and carry on as normal. Obs are all normal. Assessment was unremarkable. There was no incontinence. And as I said, the, the woman's primary concern was that she was quite embarrassed at, at uh, having had this happen at the dinner party. So Simon, what are your thoughts on that case? So this one to me sounds pretty straightforward, nothing overly concerning in the history, nothing overly concerning in the examination. The most likely thing here is that the um, bout of coughing has basically caused some vagal stimulation because of the aggressive coughing stimulated the vagus nerve, which has caused probably a profound bradycardia and hypertension. She's therefore had a basovagal syncope, collapsed with a good recovery, maybe didn't recover as quick as she should have done because she was held up in the chair. But as soon as she was led on the floor, nice rapid recovery, now feels well, all history, no red flags, all examination, no red flags. So this one to me would be um, a pretty, pretty straightforward discharge at scene, just with some safety netting, um, hopefully going home with her husband and some worsening advice, obviously just to call us back if anything changes. Yeah, completely agree. And that's what I did other than hanging around a little bit longer than I should have perhaps waiting for a, an invite to take part of the main course, which I didn't get. Uh, this patient was discharged on scene without any problems, really. So final case, case three called to a 72 year old female query collapse. I arrived 15 minutes after the call had been made to find the patient was sat in her lounge recliner. She was alert and oriented, but a little bit uncertain as to why myself and my colleague were there. And speaking to her husband, he states that he was sat in the lounge with her reading the paper and his wife was listening to the radio and the husband had been alerted to her making some loud snoring noises in the chair. And when he's looked up and looked over at her, she was unresponsive. He described her as being a deathly colour with a little bit of blue around her lips. No matter how much he shook her, she was unrousable. And after about 30 seconds, he's called 999, at which point she started to come around. Whilst waiting for the ambulance, so these people lived, lived out in the country, so it was about 15, 20 minutes for us to get there. Whilst waiting for the ambulance, she's had a second episode, much like the first, again, lasting around... 30 seconds to a minute uh, and when we got there she said she didn't feel well but she couldn't put, put her finger on why she now feels quite warm quite flushed she had no prodrome to her knowledge prior to the event no memory of feeling unwell before the event observations were all normal and her ecg uh, had a first degree heart block which we weren't sure whether or not it was new or not Okay, so it's an interesting patient. So with regards to the ECG, is there any way we can find out whether the first degree heart block is normal or abnormal for her? Has she got any previous ECGs on our records? Or if it was maybe midweek, uh, was the GP open that we could call? So it was, a, it was a weekend, unfortunately, so the GP wasn't available, but she did have a previous ECG on the EPCR system, which did show a first degree heart block. So we know then that the first degree heart block maybe is is already existent. That in itself, I, I think in the presence of syncope, could be concerning. But actually, the, the heart block is, is not the worrying feature there for me. The most important features there to me are the fact that she, again, was sat down, not standing. She is over the age of 65. And the most important thing is, is she had no prodrome. So anyone over the age of 65 with no prodrome... That's really concerning for a cardiac syncope for me. And that alone, I would convey that to ED. And then the fact that she's had two episodes without recovery and she was cyanosed during the episodes, all really concerning red flags there to me, definitely would be conveying this lady to ED for a, for a workup for a cardiac sounding syncope. 
yeah, in, entirely agree. Uh, and that's that's what we did. This job sticks in my mind quite vividly because I was working with another paramedic that day uh, and I was driving into hospital and about two minutes away from the hospital, I heard him scream through the cabin window in delightful Scottish tones. Uh, I won't repeat exactly what he said, um, but it was he was quite surprised and asked me to quite quickly get in the back with him. And when I got into the back, we just had a, a period of asystole followed by some normal sinus rhythm, which he came round again, followed again by another Stokes-Adams attack. So another period of, of asystole before coming back to a normal sinus rhythm, just as we were sort of going through the processes of, of getting the pads on her and, and about to start CPR. Um, so they were really brief episodes, but again, lasting couple of seconds 20 seconds at the most but again pretty much what the the husband had seen there and we took her into hospital quite quickly and i imagine she ended up getting fitted with some kind of pacemaker so uh yeah the arrhythmia there then is the first three heart block is the least of this lady's problems much more uh, significant arrhythmia causing her cardiac syncope so uh definitely a good case definitely needs to go to hospital Okay, so that brings us to the end of the podcast. Let's go through some take-home points because that was a pretty marathon-level podcast, wasn't it? Especially when you've done it twice, John. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, uh, <laughs> I've certainly got a beer in the fridge that's calling me after we've recorded this, Simon. So our take-home points. There are varying causes of transient loss of consciousness. These range from a simple syncope and statistically, that's probably what we're most likely to encounter. However, we have to examine every case really carefully, taking a really detailed history. It's best practice to inform patients GPs of transient loss of consciousness events, even if they are simple syncopes. So we should be sending our EPCRs or providing GP alerts where local services allow. If we can't make a definitive diagnosis of simple or situational syncope, then we should closely examine the differentials of cardiac or epileptic causes. And if these remain equally likely possibilities, then we have to refer our patients on. Whether or not that means taking into A&E depends on what our local pathways allow. The key really is all in the history. We need really detailed histories written up so that previous episodes can be compared to one another. We're in a fortunate position being the first responder, and so we need to take advantage of this to provide clear pictures of what's happened for any clinicians that are involved with the patient's care later down the line. And the final points are, make sure you document really thoroughly and really safety net, giving specific worsening advice, the symptoms that this patient should look out for and when they should be calling us back on 999. So all that's left to say is thank you very much for listening. As always, there's going to be an article write-up of this topic on our website. So to go through some of the things that we haven't had time to mention on this podcast, go and read the article at generalbroadcast.org.uk. If you've got any comments on the article or the podcast, please email your feedback to generalbroadcastpodcast at outlook.com, including if you've got any topics you want us to cover. Be sure to read the references and the nice guidelines that we've linked in with this article don't forget to subscribe to the podcast for the latest episodes but all that's left to say is thank you for listening thank you take care and see you next time oh that was a long one I never want to speak about Francine Lost Consciousness again. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Where's that beer?